What's up, everyone? Welcome to Weekends. Anna Kasparian and Nando Vila with you. Nando, how are you doing? How's your weekend so far? Doing well, doing well. My little puppy has diarrhea, so that's the only that's the only thing that's on my mind, really. I don't. I can't even. I can't even think about anything else other than that. I'm like terrified, but I'm sure she's going to be okay. Yeah, um, you're a new dog. Well, I don't know if you've had dogs yes. before, but when I grew you, up, I remember when I was a kid. Mm-hmm. Yes, when I was a kid, I had a dog, uh, but it, you know, I was a kid, so it wasn't like really my responsibility. Yeah. Yeah. I remember when I first got my dog and it's same, same story. Like I had a dog when I was younger, but of course I was living with my parents. So they took care of the dog. Um, and then when I adopted Charlie, um, the first two months were the most difficult because it is all you can think about. I know it's crazy. It sounds crazy, but you know, you're responsible for this living thing. I can only imagine how much more, um, stressful and difficult it is when you have your first child. Like (laughs) I can't imagine. No, I I can't even imagine. I mean, I was like, I was sitting on my couch this morning cramming for this show because I, I procrastinate and I do it all at the last second. And, uh, I'm sitting on my couch and my dog just kind of runs. She always like sits like on top of me when I'm kind of like, and I just look down and there's just poop all over my shirt and I'm like, oof, that's not, that's not a good sign. Uh, nope. So (laughs) that's my morning. (laughs) Well, um, we've got a great show ahead for you guys today. Uh, Nando is going to give us an update on, um, Lula da Silva in Brazil. And, uh, we're going to have Danny Bessner on to talk about, uh, foreign policy and, uh, where we stand right now with Iran and the possibility of rejoining, um, the Iran nuclear deal. Um, it's going to be a great show. As always, please uh, leave your super chat questions um, throughout the program. And in the tail end of the show, uh, we'll answer some of your questions and read some of your comments. Um, and uh, before we get to, you know, uh, all of the stuff we have prepared, I just wanted to quickly bring up um, the latest with Governor Andrew Cuomo of New York. Uh, a lot of news has broken since we last did this show. Um, so, Nando, do you want to um, maybe bring up some of the updates to that? Well, yeah. I mean, it looks like um, he uh, like it looks like everyone in the Democratic Party has turned against him. Uh, Chuck Schumer has turned against him. Gillibrand has turned against him. So the two senators from New York, um, obviously, a lot of the Congress people have turned against him. A lot of the state legislature has turned against him. And, you know, it really looked like he might resign, given that all of the powers that be within his own party are turning against him. And he called that press conference and he said that he will not resign and that, um, you know, it's cancel culture's fault. Um, yeah. <laughs> uh, and he wore this weird, uh, this weird, like, blanket uh, outside the governor's mansion. So, yeah, I mean, it, uh, it's it's going to be an interesting case study because... I think like when Al Franken uh, fell and, you know, the similar thing happened in which in which, you know, it was just the domino effect of all the people in his party kind of turning against him. And he was like, okay, you know, I I can't I can't survive this. But then Ralph Northam in North in Virginia, when he got caught doing blackface, uh, he just kind of held on and waited for it to blow over. And it did. And he's fine. And no one thinks about him. And he's there and he's popular and you know his so i think andrew cuomo who is a particular kind of like single-minded psycho is gonna do a test case of like what what it means to just hold on for dear life no matter what you know like if you get caught cheating deny 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 um and just you know blame everyone and 
so it'll it'll be interesting to see in that way like if like if from a political kind of playbook standpoint like if you can survive even your own party uh turning against you and you just kind of hold on for dear life and see what happens yeah it is fascinating but you know the party has kind of turned against him um but i do see uh quite a few blue check marks on twitter um immediately pivoting to questioning uh the credibility of the women who have come forward uh which mm. i think is so fascinating because they're engaging in the type of uh awful you know rhetoric that Democrats have been critical of when it comes from the right. Um, so I, I just, you know, there have been more women who have come forward, more former staffers who have come forward with some pretty serious and um, uh, serious allegations that go uh, beyond uh, asking inappropriate questions at work. You know, there's uh, allegations of groping and actual physical sexual assault. Um, but it is fascinating to see him try to implement this strategy that has worked over and over again. I don't know if he's going to be able to pull it off because he's dealing with not just uh, a, a sexual assault and sexual harassment scandal, but he's also dealing with, um, not to the same extent as I would hope, but he's you know embroiled in the other scandal uh, regarding the cover-up of mass deaths based on decisions that he made regarding yeah. uh, nursing homes early on in the pandemic. So we'll see how it plays out. Uh, but I do want to also just quickly note that Gillibrand was kind of staying away from commenting on Cuomo until reporters were just kind of hounding her about it because Gillibrand was the most vocal senator yeah. in calling for Al Franken to step down after that yeah. uh, photo of him emerged. You know, it was a jokey photo. It was inappropriate. Uh, but she called on him to step down. He did. And she wasn't as vociferous uh, in response to Cuomo. So um, lots of interesting stuff, lots of interesting dynamics taking place right now. Um, but we'll fill you guys in as we learn more. Yeah, um, no, and Nando, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, go ahead. What, what do we have? A, do we have a, something to read? Maybe uh, some books to read? I mean, uh, it is important to understand this moment in uh, in yes. real context. The only way you can do that is to read. And so are there any book clubs that people can join, Nando? There are some book clubs, you know, books. Check them out, right? Is that the California Raisins? That maybe they should adopt. Uh, maybe they should come back. Uh, but you can join the Verso Book Club and get every new ebook that Verso publishes each month, as well as one or more books in the mail. All Verso Book Club members will also get fifty percent off everything on the website, books and merch. All that cool Verso merch. For as long as you are a subscriber, each member tier is 50% off for your first three months. The reader tier is only $5 a month for every ebook published. The comrade tier is $20 a month. And if you join in March, you'll get Silicon Values, The Future of Free Speech Under Surveillance Capitalism by, by Jillian C. York. Tomorrow, Sex Will Be Good Again, Women and Desire in the Age of Consent by Catherine Angel. Liberalism at Large. The World According to the Economist by Alexander Zevin, and a new edition of The Emancipated Spectator by Jacques Ranciere. I think that's how you pronounce Fancy. it. I pretend like I speak French, but I, I, I really don't. I speak Spanish. A that bit sounded Spanish. perfect. I mean, it yeah, sounded really okay. good. If it was wrong, I mean, I don't, I don't want you to be yeah. right. Um, my, friend, <laughs> so. my, friend Connor, my friend Connor always says that Spaniards are just halfway between a Frenchman and a Mexican, and that's what we are. And I'm like, <laughs> you're not exactly wrong. <laughs> All right, Nando. Well, we have an international theme show today. Um, I'm not doing a decode today, but Nando is. Uh, and he's giving us an update on what's happening in Brazil. So take it away.
Yes, yes, yes. Because if you look around the world these days, it's kind of hard to find political hope anywhere. I mean, Bernie and Corbyn were dispatched by the last gasp of neoliberal reaction within their parties. The left in Europe is utterly out of the picture. China continues to chug along with no real internal dissent, while Africa and the Middle East are still mired in a series of bitter, bitter ethnic conflicts and no end in sight. But there are some seeds of optimism in Latin America. Last year, Bolivians rose up against their right-wing coup government through a series of general strikes that paralyzed the country and forced new elections. In Ecuador, a 36-year-old leftist named Andres Arauz won the first round of elections handily and is poised to take power in the second round. But this week saw some big news in Latin America's largest country, Brazil. In Brazil, all eyes are turning to the 2022 presidential elections after a Supreme Court judge cleared the corruption convictions of former President Luiz Inácio Lula da Silva in a surprise decision. That's right, baby. Lula is back. Lula is back. It's hard to overstate just how big of a deal this is. Brazil, as you may know, is more populous than the rest of South America combined. It's the fifth largest country in the world and home, of course, to the Earth's most important natural system, the Amazon rainforest, which is critical to our survival on this planet because it sucks out a huge chunk of the carbon dioxide from the atmosphere. So what happens in Brazil matters to you. And I don't know if you've been paying attention, but since 2018, Brazil has been run by this guy. That's right. Double finger guns guy himself, Jair Bolsonaro, who is somehow dumber and more violent than even President Trump. He was able to win Because Lula da Silva, who is by far the most popular politician in the country and was leading all the polls, was thrown in prison and barred from running in the presidential election. This was the result of a years-long so-called anti-corruption probe called Operation Car Wash, or Lava Jato in Portuguese. At the time, the global liberal establishment fawned over the brave heroes fighting the forces of corruption. This introduction by Anderson Cooper on 60 Minutes was fairly typical of the press's tone. Imagine if the Watergate investigation had led not only to the downfall of President Nixon, but also to allegations against his successor, plus the Speaker of the House, the Leader of the Senate, a third of the Cabinet, and more than 90 members of Congress. That gives you some idea of what's happening in Brazil right now. The country's stock market plunged this past week after a report that President Michel Temer had been caught on tape approving illegal payoffs, a potentially impeachable offense. Brazil's last president, Dilma Rousseff, was impeached. The country is suffering through one of its worst recessions in history and a crisis of leadership caused in large part by a massive corruption investigation. It's known as Operation Car Wash. It's one of the largest bribery cases ever investigated, and it's being led by a small group of idealistic young Brazilian prosecutors and a crusading judge. Wow. Small group of idealistic young Brazilian prosecutors. Anderson, tell me how you really feel. Now, at the forefront of this whole investigation was a judge named Sergio Moro. He became an international hero for his brave anti-corruption stance. And the scale of Lava Jato was immense. It took down dozens of politicians and business leaders. But the big prize was Lula himself. And in April of 2018, he was arrested for the alleged crime of receiving free renovations on an apartment in Brasilia, which he never even lived in. Again, the liberal press cheered this on. Here is the New York Times editorial board's reaction to Lula's imprisonment. Quote, 
However painful and disheartening the fall of a charismatic and dynamic leader, and however exhausted Brazilians must be from the political havoc of recent years, this is not the time to give up. History shows that battling corruption takes years, but also that incremental successes do change norms. Judges, like Sergio Moro, who has courageously led the prosecution in Operation Car Wash, have demonstrated that Brazil does have the institutions and means to take on even the most powerful and most popular of malefactors. There are still six months to go before the national elections. They should be spent in search of a leader who can ensure that the gains against corruption are not setbacks for democracy. Well, congratulations, New York Times. You got Bolsonaro. And those of us on the left always suspected that this was all just a politically motivated attack, that it was always just a way to smash the left, which was still, in Brazil, more popular than the right. In fact, it was very suspicious to those on those of us on the left that shortly after Bolsonaro won, Sergio Moro was named Brazil's justice minister. It seemed like a flagrant quid pro quo. I mean, you take out Lula, allow me to win, and I'll promote you. Well, it turns out that those of us on the left were correct. Now the former judge who oversaw a multi-billion dollar kickback scheme, nicknamed Operation Car Wash, is at the center of scandal himself and facing calls to step down. This follows the publication of leaked conversations and messages that he allegedly exchanged with prosecutors about the Lula da Silva case. Moro is allegedly heard sharing information and advice in an attempt to ensure that Lula da Silva would be found guilty, which is illegal. We can say that, in a way, the impartiality of the judgment could have been compromised, at least at the beginning. We see that there is a kind of orientation given by the judge to the prosecutors in the legal process. Lula was convicted and prevented from running for president last year, clearing the way for current president Jair Bolsonaro's victory. Bolsonaro then named Moro justice minister and reportedly promised to give him the next available seat on the Supreme Court. Well, the story of the anti-corruption crusader's own corruption was broken by Glenn Greenwald and the team at The Intercept Brazil with a massive trove of leaked WhatsApp messages and documents. And I think it's worth letting Glenn explain what they found. What this material shows are three key things. Number one, it shows that inside the prosecutor task force, they were talking openly about how they wanted me to make sure that the Workers' Party lost the election. Um, And we can talk about the specifics, but in particular, there was a judge who authorized Lula to give an interview from prison 12 days before the election, and they panicked, and they said, we need to stop this because if Lula is allowed to be heard from, he will. there's a good chance he will make PT win the election, and we need to put a stop to this. They said they were praying every day that PT doesn't return to power, PT being the Workers' Party. So this five-year claim that they had, we don't have any preferences for parties, we don't care who wins elections, was an absolute lie. They were talking openly and explicitly about how their top priority was making sure PT didn't win the election, exactly what people have been accusing them of. Secondly, just like in the U.S., a judge is required to be neutral, A judge can't favor one side or the other. And there's long been a suspicion that Judge Morrow, when he was ruling on these cases, like finding Lula guilty, finding other left-wing leaders guilty, and people from other parties guilty, that he was, in fact, collaborating in secret 
with the prosecutors to design the case. They vehemently and angrily denied this accusation. The head of the prosecutorial task force, who's a national hero in Brazil, Delton Dallengal, wrote a book in which he said, these accusations are outrageous, they're disgusting. We have video of Judge Morrow being asked about this, and he was so angry about it that he actually scoffed at it with a smile, saying people talk about this as being as though it's Judge Morrow's prosecution or Judge Morrow's strategy. Um, he said, people don't understand. Judges in Brazil have no role in prosecuting people. Our value is one of passivity. We simply listen to both sides, listen to the evidence, and make decisions. What the conversations that we publish show between Judge Morrow and the head of the prosecutorial task force is that Judge Morrow, in fact, was constantly directing, constructing, designing the entire prosecution, screaming at them when they were doing things that he thought were wrong, telling them how to better fortify the case, not just against Lula, but against other people. He was basically the commander of the prosecutorial team and then walking into court as though he were sitting judging Lula's case and others as a neutral arbiter. So everything that they vehemently denied to the public they were doing, in, that, that in fact, they were doing for years, as these documents show. And then the third uh, key revelation, as you said, is that the specific case for which they prosecuted Lula, namely the charge that he had received a what they call a triplex apartment in order to make it sound very glamorous, when in fact it's kind of run down and shoddy and Lula had the capability to buy it a 100,000 times over if he wanted. But the charge was he received this triplex apartment and renovations to it in exchange for helping this construction company get contracts that they knew themselves three days before they indicted him, that they didn't have the evidence sufficient to show his guilt or even to justify why this case belonged with them. But they just decided they were going to go forward anyway because they knew they had a judge and Judge Morrow, now Minister Morrow, single-mindedly devoted to the goal of imprisoning Lula and not just imprisoning him, but doing so in time to make him ineligible to run for 2018's election out of fear that PT would win the elections. So now Lula is back. Now, I think it's worth taking a step back because he's poised to challenge Bolsonaro in the next presidential elections in 2022. But I think we need to understand Lula's legacy and what he means for Brazil and Latin America. And for that, I would be remiss if I didn't turn to our dear departed brother and comrade, Michael Brooks. Let's hear Mike tell Jesse the Body Ventura just who Lula is. Lula went from being a very popular president in Brazil to a prisoner convicted on corruption charges. For those who don't know, Talk about Lula's presidential legacy, Michael. Why was he so popular? Jesse, thanks for giving me this opportunity. I really appreciate it. Uh, and I think that this story does have major consequences for all of us. He lifted 40 million people out of poverty. That's the top line. 40 million Brazilians went from being in poverty to basically being somewhere in the lower middle class. He eliminated hunger. That was recognized by the UN. And he also pursued, and I think that this tells kind of more of the broad story we'll get to later, he really tried to pursue a non-aligned foreign policy for Brazil. So he wasn't in any way sort of 
hostile to anybody, really. I mean, he was trying to synchronize a foreign policy that charted an independent course, um, including things like some of the pre-negotiations for what later became the Iran deal were conducted by Lula. So by the time he left office in 2010, he was internationally recognized, he had sky-high approval ratings, and that was the story of his presidency. I interviewed Jesse Ventura once, and I remember Mike and I used to always talk about how cool he was. Um, So Lula's presidency transformed Brazil. It is one of the most successful left-wing presidencies ever. His signature reform was known as Bolsa Familia, which was a cash transfer scheme for the poor that lifted millions out of poverty. But even before he became president, Lula had already transformed Brazil through his remarkable rise through the labor movement. As I mentioned at the top, Brazil is a massive country. It's incredibly diverse and complex with massive industrialized cities like Sao Paulo and Amazonian outposts like Manaus and everything in between. Brazil imported more African slaves than any other country in the Western Hemisphere. So its history is a very violent one and its society is terribly unequal and its social divisions run deep. In 1964, a U.S.-backed coup instituted a military dictatorship in order to thwart a budding social democratic movement. The dictatorship was brutal. It ruled through torture, murder, censorship, and repression. But by the 1970s, the labor movement was gaining steam, especially in the car manufacturing plants around Sao Paulo. And at the forefront of that movement was an uneducated factory worker who had lost a finger to the machine, Lula da Silva. Here's the Christian Science Monitor on that time. In 1979, more than 170,000 metal workers paralyzed the three main industrial suburbs of Sao Paulo, then known as the ABC region. The state intervened to bring large-scale striking to a halt, but it turned into a violent confrontation between armed forces and the unions. Strikes continued in the south of Brazil, and in the fall of 1979, the government agreed to a new wage law that adjusted wages every six months. Quote, these strikes mark the beginning of the end of the dictatorship, says Broadwin Fisher, a history professor at Northwestern University in Evanston, Illinois. Strikes were led primarily by the Metal Workers Union under the leadership of Luis Ignacio da Silva, known as Lula. They marked the creation of Brazil's Workers' Party, which is one of the nation's main political parties today. Mr. da Silva went on to serve as Brazil's president between 2003 and 2010. The military dictatorship went away in 1985, and it was thanks in large part, to the massive strikes led by Lula. So it's not just that his presidency was a success, it's that he utterly transformed the country through his life's work. Of course, for someone like Barack Obama, that was not enough. In his memoir, Obama wrote of Lula, quote, he had the scruples of a Tammany Hall boss and rumors swirled about government cronyism, sweetheart deals, and kickbacks that ran into the billions. Thanks, Obama. Anyway, Lula understands that the power of international capital, of whom Obama is a dutiful servant, will work to destroy any leader who tries to help the poor. Ou seja, na América Latina, toda vez que apareceu um presidente que tentou fazer política social, ele foi derrubado. Todas as vezes. A elite brasileira e a elite de outros países não aceitam uma política de desenvolvimento que tem inclusão social. Well, so what now? Well, everyone assumes that Lula will run again in 2022 in what will be a political cage match for the ages. Bolsonaro versus Lula. Two men enter, one man leaves. I think Jesse Ventura should be the announcer. And the good news is Lula seems to have the upper hand at the moment. 
James, how popular is Lula da Silva now and how much of a threat could he pose politically to President Jair Bolsonaro? It's, all indications are that his popularity is increasing very quickly. He gave a press conference yesterday, which was extremely well received, even by the media that had been very hostile towards him in Hedge Global, the global news network. Uh, I think his popularity will only increase as he starts carrying out uh, a campaign to travel through the country to speak to the people. Now, of course, a lot can change from now until the election. They can try and use the courts to stop Lula again, although that may be difficult. But as Benjamin Fogel writes in Jacobin, there could be even something more nefarious. Quote, the elephant in the room is how the Brazilian military will respond. In a recent book, former armed forces head Eduardo Villas-Boas admitted that he and other senior generals attempted to exert pressure on the Supreme Court through Twitter the night before a ruling that would determine if Lula would be imprisoned and ineligible to run in the 2018 elections. But for now, Lula is livre, and he is eligible to run. The Workers' Party is still the largest party in the country, and Lula himself is the most popular politician in the country. And there is hope that alongside figures like AMLO in Mexico, Arce in Bolivia, Fernandez in Argentina, Arauz in Ecuador, and of course, Lula in Brazil, the pink tide will get a sequel in Latin America. Hopefully this time they can build on the foundation set in the early 2000s and go beyond the reforms that lifted up 70 million people out of poverty. A lot, lot of good news uh, today uh, regarding Latin America. Um, obviously, the segment you just did, uh, the interim president for uh, in Bolivia, Janine Añez, I believe, uh, yep. just got arrested. Um, you know, and that was, of course, yep. a product of the coup that took place in Bolivia. So a lot, a lot of great news. Um, but I want this to be more than just a story in time. I, I think there are important lessons to learn from what happened to Lula um, that the left, uh, particularly the particularly in the United States, should be aware of um, and think about uh, critically. And that is the way that the right wing propagates, uh, you know, certain narratives that tend to be appealing to the left, right? But it's it's all empty BS. Like in the case of Lula, they used the issue of corruption. And obviously corruption is something that most people care about, but the left also cares about. And so Painting him as this uh, corrupt politician was the right kind of propaganda to get pr- people to turn on him, right? And so we should be aware of similar tactics that are used here in the United States. Um, I, I think a, pr- a good example right now is uh, the topic of cancel culture and how it gets uh, twisted to fit the narrative that the corporate Democrats want to put out there, right? So we talked about that last week with Kirsten Cinema, you know, voting against the $15 an hour minimum wage. And then she uses um, identity politics, for instance, uh, and, and cancel culture certainly connected to that because identity politics usually leads to the cancellation of someone. But she used like the fact that she's a woman to say that any type of backlash or criticism is sexism. Um, we've seen prominent, um, you know, progressives running for office get hit with all sorts of insane accusations of sexism, racism, things that the left clearly cares about. And it, it's just frustrating to see how easily like those narratives, um, seep into people's consciousness and convinces them that uh, someone who's been fighting for the working class, someone who's uh, who has the right politics is actually a bad person because they've been painted in a certain way uh, by 
political opponents, you know, and I just see it happening over and over again. Yeah, I mean, it, w- there's different flavors of it, but a lot of the same things happen. I mean, if you remember uh, Jeremy Corbyn, like Jeremy Corbyn, who we interviewed on this show, and like, it's just like, a you know it when you see it, just a kind, decent man, um, was smeared as some sort of violent anti-Semite. Um, and that narrative kind of stuck. Because the media was just like telling it over and over and over and over again. And it's and it's only a matter of time before something like that sticks. Bernie Sanders was somehow seen here uh, by the mainstream media as some sort of crypto misogynist, uh, racist, uh, like crazy things. Like a, a guy who was arrested uh, on his college campus uh, fighting for civil rights in the 1960s and marched, you know, with Martin Luther King and all this stuff. Like is somehow now warped and, and seen as a racist. Um, in Latin America, you see uh, any leftist leader, whether it's uh, um, Evo Morales in, in Bolivia or Hugo Chavez in Venezuela, you know, seen as some sort of um, kind of dictatorial, authoritarian strongman. That's the narrative that comes out. And it's just like, you have to, at a, some, at a certain point, you just have to see what's going on here. Like any, like as Lula said in that clip, he's like, any any politician who tries to do anything in terms of economic development for the poor will get smeared to a degree that is just perfectly consistent, you know. And 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 often, I mean, this is especially true of liberals. They'll be like, "Well, you know, he he had some great achievements, but you know, what? he did the corruption stuff, you know." And then then you're mm-hmm. like, "Like what what corruption stuff?" And then they can't really tell you exactly what, but it's just the narrative is out there, you know. It's like, well. Yeah, you know, Bernie, but like, you know, he's got problems with race. And you're like, what what problems with race? You know, like tell me one thing that right, he right. has that is like a like a problem and it's like, well, you know, you know, they they don't they don't tell you because it's it's just kind of the narrative is out there. Um so it it really is um you have to be so skeptical of the mainstream media and how they cover anything on the left. I mean, this isn't to say like you you don't think critically or anything like that, but like you just have to be incredibly wary of mainstream media narratives about the left. I mean, it's just it just it's so consistent. No matter who it is, no matter who it is, like Lula did everything right. I mean, this is something that Mike would talk about a lot. He like he did everything supposedly right. He didn't do like the the Chavez stuff, right? Like he wasn't too much of a you know like Chavez was a troll. Like he knew how to rile up the you know the the Western establishment, like. You know, uh, he he like went to the United Nations and said that he smelled sulfur whenever uh, George W. Bush walked into the room and things like that. Like he knew how to do that. And and like, you know, he like as a military man, he had a slight kind of, you know, authoritarian kind of bent to him. He he had that kind of Lula did everything right. Like he did the he played by the rules, so to speak. Um, and they got him anyway, you know, like yeah, of um, they got him anyway. So so uh yeah, I mean, but that's a lesson as be... well, right? That's a lesson as well that if you if you play by the rules, if you uh, go out of your way to not threaten um, the liberals, they're still going to have it out for you. And so, you know, the fight for the left it, it never really ends, right? One victory no. doesn't mean that there that you can just kind of like be 
calm and complacent and you don't have to deal with, uh, you know, efforts to, to destroy you. And the thing that does worry me, you touched on this a little bit, um, and I think that your analysis on it is right. Uh, there is a possibility of Lula uh, facing a retrial because the judge didn't make the decision that was made because of uh, evidence, and there is yeah. evidence, uh, thanks to the intercept reporting, indicating that this was a politically motivated um, action, right? What the judge said was, okay, well, there are jurisdictional issues considering that Lula was tried in an area where the crime didn't happen, where the alleged crime didn't happen, right? I I wish that the ruling was different. It's basically a technicality, right? Mm-hmm. Hopefully, if he does face a retrial, uh, the reporting that's happened since he was imprisoned uh, will uh, finally like just clear him of any wrongdoing yeah. because he didn't do anything wrong. It was a politically motivated um, prosecution. Uh, but I bring that up because I don't think that... Uh, I don't think that Lula's in the clear yet. Like, the fight continues. Um, so while it's good to celebrate uh, this victory, um, I don't think that it's the end. I think that he's a huge threat to uh, multinational corporations. I think he's a, a huge threat to business interests. Um, and they're going to keep fighting. So uh, it's, it's definitely a story to keep close eyes on. And m- more importantly, to be incredibly critical of narratives that play out in corporate media. Um, you know, because... You just have to read the Wall Street Journal, uh, The Guardian at this point, and The New York Times um, in, in a more skeptical light when it comes to these foreign policy issues. Yeah. No, I mean, the, uh, the you know, what you mentioned about the, the, the jurisdictional issue. I mean, I've seen, you know, uh, the media cover, you know, have like Brazilian constitutional scholars who say like, oh, well, you know, it seems very difficult that they can do it in time because of the way the courts work and things like that. I mean, it's obviously like, they can just make up. They can make up new rules and 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 do like. There's not like these things aren't set in stone, and they can just make they can just make up a new rule and figure out some way to bar him from running again. Um, I think that the the damage to the credibility of the judicial system because of these revelations about Sergio Moro. I mean, it's hard to it's hard to imagine someone a figure like him in America. There hasn't ever really been a figure like him, like this kind of crusading judge who mm-hmm. became such a hero um, around the world. I mean, when I was researching the segment, there's, you know, he was invited to international conferences, to universities around, you know, very prestigious universities around the world to talk about like leadership and things like that. Like it's, it, 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 there isn't quite a figure like that, that we can understand here in the United States. And his fall from grace is so dramatic and that the whole system is so dramatic and it's just so obvious to even like, as the guy in the clip said, that even Globo was like, you know, which is highly, you know, very anti-PT, uh, um, was like, well, you know, Lula made some good points in that speech. Like, it's just, it would be hard to see, it would, it would be hard to imagine them being able to muster the energy to do that again um, in the same way. That's why, like, Benjamin Fogel's like, well, maybe they have to, you know, if they really want to stop him, they have to go to the, you know, they have to pull the the nuclear option and <laughs> get the military uh, involved, which would obviously be terrifying. But um, so, so yeah, I mean, it seems like the Brazilian elite is desperately going to try to find some sort of candidate, some sort of, like, Emmanuel Macron or Justin Trudeau type figure um, to run, but it, it just, I, I don't know. It just seems like from all I can, from all I can gather and from all I can read that it's, 
You know, the center cannot hold in Brazil. It's either it's either Lula or or Bolsonaro, and you got to choose. And um, so I, I like the odds in in that fight. Yeah. Well, um, we're not done with foreign policy. Uh, joining us now is Daniel Bessner, a good friend of the show and um, a history professor, knows his stuff. Um, and uh, we have a lot of Damn, questions. Daniel, about you look world. great. Did you comb your hair yeah. and did you put on, uh, you know, like you fired up your ring light? You look, you're looking great. I keep it real. I keep it real. Yeah. This, this, is, yeah. this is my crib. Welcome to my crib. <laughs> Hey, Danny. Um, So let's start off by discussing uh, the latest with Iran, uh, because one of Joe Biden's campaign promises was that he would reenter the JPCOA uh, or the Iran nuclear deal. And now it appears that um, he's certainly taking his time. And uh, the media narratives that I've come across uh, try to push this idea that it's just a lot more complicated than we realize uh, to re-enter that nuclear deal. So what are your thoughts about where the United States stands right now on that issue? Yeah, it's a, it's a really good question. And I think that it's indicative of the larger thrust of Biden's foreign policy, which is essentially a return to the status quo sometime in the Obama administration. Foreign policy, obviously, pre the negotiation of the Iran deal. But um, my sense from within the sort of deep sea foreign policy community, the think tanks, the people who are discussing this professionally, is that within the Biden administration, there's anxiety about either entering the deal too quickly or, um, you know, re-signing the JCPOA in a meaningful way because it would give up so-called leverage against Iran. Um, so again, um, the purpose, uh, the thing to take away from here, this is that I think the general geostrategic perspective of the U.S. and the broader Middle East, Near East, whatever you want to call it, um, is basically unchanged um, and has been unchanged for decades. Um, so whereas Obama wanted to do some sort of normalization to the end of uh, Iran's nuclear uh, program, Biden is most concerned with ensuring some sort of Saudi or Israeli hegemony in the region and, and doesn't want to give up any so-called leverage against Iran. And it'll be interesting to see what happens with the future of, of sanctions. But again, um, I think it's disappointing, if not surprising, that a, a, a Biden campaign that did promise to enter the deal and made significant overtures toward removing itself from the Middle East is probably not going to do that. And I think this raises raises larger questions, generally speaking, about uh, an administration that I I don't want to oversell it, but there has been, you know, a change since Obama that is going to be more progressive, whatever that means, in terms of... um, moving a, a domestic policy agenda. We might not get Medicare for all, but there'll be, you know, the, already the, the recovery bill or the COVID bill rather is, you know, uh, significantly more than the recovery act of, of, of the early Obama administration that we might get moves in, in a progressive direction on domestic policy, but foreign policy is going to be relatively status quo. And you saw that today with, you know, Biden basically saying that he's not going to uh, do anything with regards to the defense budget. And I think this raises really interesting questions for the American left um, for a variety of reasons that we could talk about, but um, I'll stop now. But it, it's a really interesting moment. Yeah, the the Biden, uh, you know, there was rumors that maybe they were going to touch the defense budget a little bit, maybe like a slight haircut, maybe like a symbolic, which would be, I mean, I remember when Obama tried to not reduce the defense budget, just reduce the rate of increase on the defense budget. And there was already like the, the pushback to that was like already, you know, tremendous. Um, and then Biden saying that, you know, the Khashoggi thing, you know, we know that MBS did it, but we're, we're, we're just really mad at him and we're not going to do anything. But I want to I continue to talk about Iran for one second. I, like Taking a step back, 
why does Iran drive these people crazy so much? Like, what is it about Iran, this like country, right. you know, in I the mean, Middle East? Like, what, like, what dri- drives these people fucking crazy? Why? And, and I, I, sorry, I meant psycho. I don't mean like like psychotic. I mean like psychosocial. Um, I think it has a lot to do with with the betrayal of the United States. So of course, the United States famously overthrew Mohammed Mossadegh with that very much the help of the UK. Uh, people need to know that it was really a UK US operation in in 1953. They overthrew this democratically elected government of Mohammed Mossadegh, someone on the social social socialist left, um, and installed the Shah. And of course, the Shah ruled very brutally. Um, and we were all in. LA. Um, we have a lot of Shah supporters here, but there was actually a recent um, interesting exhibit at the at LACMA about sort of Iranian art uh, uh, depicting uh, awful life under the Shah. So the Shah ruled brutally for uh, a long time until the Ayatollah Khomeini uh, returned from exile in the Iranian revolution of 78, 79, uh, which of course was capped by the, uh, as depicted in Argo, or at least partially depicted in Argo by the um, the hostage crisis, um, where uh, hundreds of, of um, Civilians uh, working at the U.S. Embassy were taken hostage, and I think they were in uh, uh, captivity for about 444 days. I believe that's what it is. They were left, uh, they were let out in the early Reagan administration, I think the first week or second week, I forget the exact date. And that was really just a a figure in the eye of the United States. Uh, And a broader shift, I would say, in the politics of the Middle East, again, broadly speaking, from the Arab nationalism of the 40s, 50s, 60s, and early 70s to the the sort of Islamic-infused politics of the 70s, 80s, 90s. Uh, and 2000s. And so Iran essentially became an important symbol um, in U.S. thinking, and particularly among the foreign policy elite, because it basically, you know, in the late 1970s until recently was remembered as one of the worst times in post-war history. The um, Iranian government, the the Ayatollah's government was like jabbing its finger in the eyes of the United States. And that just angered a lot of Americans who thought that they shouldn't basically have any criticism of them, especially in, in what had been a, a client state for so long. And I think really that's the source of the U.S.-Iranian tension. This sort They're of still like, mad about that? It's kind of like uh, it's kind of like when you do something bad and you're like, come on, man. It's, yeah. You're still mad about that? You're <laughs> still mad about that. And then you have like more recent things that happened during the war on terror. But I think like the original sin goes back to the 1970s. Uh, and I think that's really it. And then coupled with that, you have the geostrategic logic of the United States supports Saudi for various reasons, mostly because it gives oil to our allies uh, and provides a sort of um, uh, entry point to the Middle East. And of course, Israel um, also provides an entry point. And Israel and Saudi Arabia are very anti uh, uh, Iranian, and so it, it supports the whole general geostrategic logic and the reason. But from any you know so-called objective perspective, uh, Iran is really not that important to the United States. Um, the Middle East, in general, really isn't that not that important to the United States any longer. Um, and uh, the United States has done an enormous amount of damage to that country for essentially no uh, significant reason, in my opinion. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I think that's why uh, now we're seeing that pivot to Asia, which we can talk about in a minute, but I'm I'm not done with Iran yet. I actually have um, just a question about, you know, the influence of Israel on the Biden administration and its policy on Iran, because, you know, Benjamin Netanyahu famously uh, or notoriously was against the Iran nuclear deal. At the same time, of course, he was simultaneously uh, fear monger about Iran and how much of a threat it really serves to Israel. So, um, you know, it seems to be conflicting that on one hand, uh, you have this Iran nuclear deal, which uh, was a really great deal uh, when it comes to, um, you know, stopping any or 
preventing the development of any nuclear weapons uh, within Iran. Uh, this was a multi-country agreement with um, oversight and checks uh, to ensure that they were actually following through with it. Iran at- continued to follow through with the Iran nuclear deal even after Trump had pulled out of it. So what is it about Netanyahu um, that... Uh, why does Netanyahu think that the Iran nuclear deal is an awful deal? Um, and what exactly does uh, the Israeli government want the United States to do in response to Iran? That, that's uh, two really good questions. I would say a couple of things. I think, I think Netanyahu, like genuinely deeply in his soul, believes that the Jews are always under attack. His father was a very famous historian of the Spanish Inquisition. And, you know, he's a post-Holocaust Jew growing up in, in Israel, uh, the, the, you know, the Zionist state, which is based on ethnicity. So there's there's just like an ideological thing there where that he thinks like in the wake of the Holocaust, the Jews are always under attack. And Iran is just the latest in, uh, in, in, in uh, instantiation of, you know, Amaleks and this sort of biblical image that recurs throughout you know Jewish nationalist thought uh, and Jewish thought in general over the last 2000 years so there's that you know just like deeply personal thing that no facts and logic aren't going to change um, but from from the geostrategic perspective essentially he wants Israel to be allowed to do what it wants in the in the West Bank in particular he wants it to um, expand in the West Bank and he doesn't want the so-called you know Muslim street not Arab street obviously because Iranians are not um uh, ethnically Arab, but he doesn't want like the Muslim street to be to be chinned up against Israel. Now, in terms of the United States, why does the United States just allow Netanyahu to do whatever he wants? I think that is, again, so deeply ideological that you have someone like Anthony Blinken, when he was giving a talk last summer, say, like, we're going to totally change Middle East policy, except for certain fundamentals. And the only fundamental that he mentions is the United States' unwavering support for Israel. Now, so why does the United States have unwavering support for Israel? Um, I think that's mostly due to domestic lobbies, Um, particularly today. Actually, the Christian evangelical lobby is probably more important than, uh, you know, lobby uh lobbying groups associated with jews but in the 50s and the 60s um it was mostly jewish organizations and in the 70s and the 80s and the 90s evangelical organizations began to take over and they essentially made unwavering support for israel a, a crucial plank of u.s foreign policy and because most americans to be frank don't really care that much about foreign policy unless there's a war um you know hyper interested small groups are able to have an enormous amount and i think uh, enormous amount of impact and i think that's what's going on with regards to um israel and iran and we see it uh, we see it in other places you know nando's from uh, miami the cuban lobby is is, is very influential and there are other ethnic lobbies that are very important. Um, they have been since the late 19th century. And this is just a, a, an element, in, a dynamic element of American politics that hasn't gone away and is here to stay. So I think those are, are the major reasons. And of course, Netanyahu, who spent a significant amount of time in the States, um, I think he actually went to Long Beach High School in New York, which is right near where I'm from. I'm not sure if he graduated from there, but I'm pretty sure he went there. Also has, you know, deep connections within the Washington foreign policy community. He's been in power for a really long time. He is going back in power to the 90s. And so there's lots of connections there and there's lots of institutional inertia that supports exactly what the United States is doing vis-a-vis Iran and vis-a-vis Israel. It sounds like to me that you're blaming the problems in the Middle East on Spain. On Spaniards, <laughs> as I, as, that's all I heard from. That's all I heard from that answer. It's probably right. Um, you, you've we've talked about this a lot in person um, because you were kind of in the Bernie orbit. You're an academic, uh, you know, expert on uh, U.S. foreign policy and things like that. But one of the things you always talk about is how little we know about the national security state. It's kind of like the ocean floor, which. You know, we think we would know everything about it, but we actually know very little about it. Um, And like one of the first jobs that you would want to do if you were 
in power in some way is to literally just do um, like congressional task forces to figure out what the hell is going on inside there because we just literally don't know. It's like a black box. Can you describe that dynamic a little bit? Like just how much do we not know about what goes on? Sure. And I think this is actually really critical if like the left is serious about governing. So the way I would frame it is that the, the, the New Deal order of the 1930s and 1940s uh, became permanent because New Dealers made a deal with conservatives, people who were anti having a large, expansive state. And the deal essentially was that certain functions that you might be that might like properly be considered part of, of a state function, for example, healthcare, for example, building defense armaments, for example, research into what someone should do uh, on the international stage, were were privatized. So, for let's take for example what I study, the Rand Corporation, whose basic contractor, at least in its first decades, was just the United States government, was nominally private, right? So you have a bunch of people being funded by the Air Force, mostly, uh, coming up with ideas about what the United States should do in the world, totally outside uh, congressional or or public, um, or or the purview of of Congress or the public. Uh, And that's just an example that exists in a lot of different spaces. For example, Americans' weapons are produced by private contractors, famously the military-industrial complex. Um, So what you have is a, a state formation that does not only consist of the official organizations of the state, the ones we always hear about, the CIA, the NSC, the Department of Defense, the State Department, but also has this sort of um, large penumbra of parastatal organizations like the Rand Corporation, like Boeing, like Lockheed Martin, like Raytheon, like Northrop Grumman, uh, Grumman, that are actually not officially part of the state, but essentially serve state functions. So when people refer to the national security state, um, they're mostly thinking about the CIA and DOD, but I think it would be more useful to think about both the official organizations of government and these sorts of parastatal organizations. Now, of course, these parastatal organizations are very difficult to get a handle on what they're doing. For example, the Freedom of Information Act, you cannot use that to get information from parastatal, quote unquote, private organizations. So that what, what, what this is uh, this is all to say that we don't even have a really good sense of, of how these organizations function with each other. So when I was on the Bernie, you know, team coming up, I, I don't want to exaggerate my importance by any stretch of the imagination. I was the one you were the- you were you were talking to him every day. You were day. you were you were the puppet master behind the street behind the scenes. We have you. To, to blame for both his successes and his failures. I'll take it. I'll take it. But uh, one of the things that I was really um, emphasizing there was that, like, we just need to, come, like, literally figure out how, how the power map, I, I mean, to use an old lefty term about union organization, to really just understand where power flows in this very complex structure that is regulated and not regulated in particular areas. Um, so I think this is one of the major problems, right? It's such a complex bureaucratic structure. So you have this large thing. And and then there's another problem, which is that foreign policy making, while at the same time as, as you had this kind of ever expanding national security state, has at one and the same time been being uh, been further concentrated in the White House, where it's like literally like the State Department has has less influence on foreign policy than the National Security Council. Uh, and of course, the National Security Council, uh, the president can just appoint whomever they want. And this is how someone like, of course, Henry Kissinger gets into power or Spring Brzezinski gets into power or people who might have had a more of a difficult time getting confirmed, maybe not. But um, so you have this sort of concentration of power around the individual of the president at the same time 
that you have this ever expanding national security state. So this creates a lot of like very difficult um, power flows that are very difficult to get a handle on, uh, particularly when, uh, as in the past, and, and, and this will probably make people angry, but in the past, le- the left wing and particularly like grassroots left anti-war movements have not been particularly successful in achieving any of their goals. So the, the you know, whereas you can say like, if you want to, you know, push Medicare for all, you could um, organize, you know, and obviously there's lots of problems about organization in, in the political economy of 2021, but you could organize people around a shared set of interests to push a particular agenda. Um, but when this has happened, and it has almost always happened around when American soldiers are dying in war, it actually hasn't proven that effective in, in stopping these sorts of things. So you have this big problem where you have this incredibly complex state, centralization of power in the White House, um, grassroots movements that have not been particularly effective, and I might add a military that since the war, war on terror was declared in 2001, has become ever an ever more influential foreign policymaker and um, and the military, of course, not elected, blah, blah, blah. You, you all know the story. So uh, we're in a, a very uh, difficult position when we're speaking uh, on the left about how to actually influence things. And should when, when Bernie would have entered office, one of the things that I, that I wanted uh, him to do or whomever he appointed was just to create a series of task forces to get a better sense of how power actually works in, in the United States. And let me just take one more example, then we'll stop ranting. Like, think about the nuclear football, right? Everyone heard about the nuclear football, you know, yes. carrying around that. In actuality, there's a, a number of choke points throughout the American system where people like individuals have the ability to make a nuclear war. Right. And we're not like quite even sure where those chokeholds are. And that's something of world ending capacity. And so this is a problem, I would say, in modernity when you have these ever expanding states with very little democratic control, which is what the U.S. state is, a gigantic state that's both private and public and almost no congressional or public oversight. Mm. Jesus. Uh, well, you know, I'm, I'm curious about how uh, that concentration of power was impacted after 9-11 as well, because following 9-11, there was that 9-11 commission um, and it was touted as this bipartisan commission. And, you know, they're super unbiased. They're just trying to find uh, ways to ensure that we protect national security moving forward. And really the the only thing that came out of it was something pretty awful, which was the creation of the director of national intelligence within the executive branch. And uh, that person actually has quite a bit more power uh, than any other national security agency um, in our federal government. Can you talk about how that uh, further concentrated power uh, within the executive branch and, you know, uh, perpetuated more of the problem that you were just talking about? Sure. Uh, so one of the big criticisms after line 11 was so-called stovepiping, which is that there were lots of different intelligence bureaus, and there still are lots of intelligence bureaus in, in various elements of the American state. So the Army has one, the CIA has one, the Navy has one, the, the State Department has some sort of intelligence gathering capabilities. And so these organizations weren't talking to each other, right? And, and so one of the reasons that, that um, 9-11 happened, or so the argument went, was that um, there wasn't enough centralization of power, or at least oversight of this large intelligence bureaucracy. So you have the creation of a position that is supposed to uh, over oversee these. But again, as Anna, I think you're saying, I think the story is really just that. It's just contributed to this ever-increasing centralization of power in the White House, which has essentially occurred since the passage of the National Security Act in 1947, and which, as I, I think you rightly implied, really took off after 2001, when Congress, which famously hasn't declared war since June 1942, basically abandoned all of its constitutional um, responsibilities with the AU, the authorization to use military force, which ha- or and things like the Patriot Act as well, which essentially gave the president the executive carte blanche to, to do whatever they want. Um, and so I think 
this might have to do with just the fundamental institutional problem of the United States is that um, whether or not it was intended to be this way, the president has over the accretion of history essentially become a king in a, in, a, in a number of specific areas where they're able to essentially do whatever, whatever they want. And this was, this was not really a left or right thing. It's sort of like just happened for a variety of reasons. Um, but this is a situation that we find ourselves in today. So the president does have an enormous amount of power, but the thing that's mitigating against the president using that power effectively, for example, if Bernie would have gone in is again, this incredibly complex structure. So um, I think the, the creation of, of the, of the central intelligence position, was just one of those aspects where now the president receives these daily briefings uh, about how the world is about to be destroyed and they're able and these directors of intelligence are able to just influence the president uh, directly further concentrating essentially power in the hand of an individual. Um, so I think it's just part of that larger story. Speaking of kings, what are your thoughts on Meghan Markle? No, I'm kidding. Don't answer that. But uh, no, I, I'm seriously, I, 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 I started thinking while you were answering that and mentioning the king that... Um, you know, the the sort of unwinding of the British Empire in a way kind of led to the rise of of the welfare state in the UK, NHS and things like that. And um, and, you know, we get the sense here in uh, the United States that while we're living here, we're, we're seeing some sort of decline. We're, we're living through like a social decline, maybe even a social collapse. You can't you always make the point that while that may be true, the empire is as powerful as ever, even if it's like maybe dumber than past empires um, or at least more comical, uh, but it still has like the hard power um, all over the world. What's your like, what's your, if you're like looking into the future, do you, do you foresee some openings for something like that? Or is, are we just going to continue decline, declining at home while strengthening uh, our hard power abroad? Well, it's really interesting because I think that question points to sort of um, one of the one of the big analytical questions of, of our era, which is that we have a nationally situated security state that is essentially run by the United States, the 750 bases, et cetera. At, at, at one and the same time, the state interacts with a genuinely international capital, which has created a globalized bourgeoisie where p- rich people in Delhi and New York and London and Jakarta might have more in common with each other than, you know, someone in, in living on the Upper West Side and someone living in the outskirts of, of, of a East New York projects or something along those lines. So you have this very complex situation where you have um, nation states and empires and international capital existing at the same time at different levels of sovereignty. So this is a really complex situation that I, I can't answer your question directly because we haven't done the first steps of research, which is to understand how these things interact. So let, let's even take global capital, right? We all know there's global capital. However, the global capital system is only made possible by the, by two things. One, American military hegemony to do things like keep sea lanes open or you know something as basic as that. And two, the American dollar, which is the global denomination of currency. And even all of these attempts to sort of undermine the dollar, whether it happens in East Asia or whether it's going on in, in sort of Bitcoin type cryptocurrency, I don't think are going to be uh, particularly successful because the power of the dollar is tied directly to the uh, security power. And the United States, essentially, if it ever wanted to, and I think you might actually see it starting to want to for various domestic reasons, could really shut down any attempts to challenge it. So this is a really difficult situation that we're in. We have a decaying domestic society. I think that's pretty obvious and, and still an, an enormously 
materially powerful, uh, objectively empire. And so I'm, I'm actually beginning to think of some of these things through in a uh, column that I write for Derek Davison's Foreign Exchanges newsletter, which is in what ways could this actually exist in global structure of American empire or not if, but, um, not only in what ways, but if it could be used toward more positive um, ends. And this is obviously like a, a first sort of step in research. But if you think about it from a Marxist perspective, the whole Marxist claim is that you need capitalism because capitalism creates the conditions of technologies, social relations, i.e. the creation of the uh, industrial working class that enables socialism. So if we actually have this existing U.S. empire, what is the goal? Should we just try to get it down or should we try to turn that empire into something that would be genuinely democratic or not? I don't know. But the truth is, is that we're facing uh, a 21st century that's going to be defined by like truly global problems, climate inequality, pandemic. And we don't have any planetary organizations that are able to address these problems effectively. So this is an enormous problem that I think we're going to have to address going forward. And I don't, I don't, the only global organization that I see is the American empire, uh, the American empire and a nationally situated left um, because there's no real international left-wing movement or, or working class movement. So it's up to us. But I don't, I, this is very difficult. I mean, show. yeah, it's up to us on the show, but it's a very <laughs> problem, right? Are you going to be able to really use the empire for good? Maybe not, you know, I don't know, but I don't see any other organization. The UN is not going to do it. Who's going to, who's going to do climate change? I don't know. Yeah. I mean, well, speaking of, um, you know, future problems and, and a growing problem that uh, I think most people who are paying attention to foreign policy have noticed um, is this pivot to Asia that really began under Obama's administration tail end of uh, his second term. And obviously, you know, in political ads, whether it's a Democrat or a Republican we're talking about, you'll notice very similar language being used and antagonistic language uh, toward China. And what's kind of terrifying about that is while, you know, the American electorate uh, is experiencing fatigue regarding endless wars, and that's a good sign. I feel like the temperature changes a little bit when it comes to uh, their rhetoric on China. So um, can you just kind of discuss uh, why Obama decided to, uh, you know, undergo this pivot to Asia and what this means uh, for the future of the relationship between the United States and China? course. So I think there are there are two explanations. The, the longer term historical explanation is that since the 1930s, American liberalism, and I would say like liberalism one, um, like conservatism, and, unless you're talking reactionary, like the Republicans and Democrats are like various stripes of capital L liberalism. So since the 1930s, American liberalism has defined itself almost by necessity in, in dialogue with an existential enemy, first the Nazis, then the Soviets, then like ending Holocaust in the 1990s, uh, then Islamic terror, and now China. So so there's this just long-term historical thing that you need an enemy to provide a justification for the empire. Because why else are you spending this amount of money? Why else are you having 750 military bases, 700, you know, a more than $740 billion military budget, unless there's a true existential enemy. So in some sense, the pivot to China is just the latest sort of cycle of this need for an existential enemy. Uh, a more proximate cause is that uh, American foreign policymakers are beginning to become, um, uh, concerned uh, about basically the rise of China, you know, a, a power that has been extremely powerful for thousands of years, had basically a century and a half or two centuries uh, of being sort of on the lower end of the global totem pole, but has through a variety of means, essentially through authoritarian state capitalism, done an enormous amount of internal development. Um, 
Of course, one thing I should say, the problem, my understanding, I, again, I'm not a China expert, but I'm close to many China experts. And my problem, uh, a, a problem is Some of that, my best friends are China experts. <laughs> my uncle. <laughs> 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 a problem. A problem. <laughs> My dad's wife is Chinese. There, there you go. Uh, a problem with this is that the PRC is to some degree still a black box, that we don't have a great sense necessarily of everything that's going on in China, the internal dynamics of Chinese society, the internal dynamics of the, of the party itself, the state apparatus. So a lot of this is a, a, um, what used to be called during the Cold War Kremlinology, right? You're, you're, you don't have great access to information, so you're trying to figure things out. So with those caveats. But according to uh, American foreign policymakers, China is, I would say, understandably and predictably, uh, beginning to assert itself in its region in East Asia uh, and beginning also to assert itself against India to its south. Uh, and you see things like India and Pakistan lining up to balance against China, whatever. That's a, another topic. So American foreign policymakers see this. They also recognize that a number of the client regimes, are that might be too harsh in 2021, but a number of close U.S. allies, uh, Japan, South Korea foremost among them, are becoming increasingly nervous about the expansion of Chinese hegemony in the region. And of course, the United States has many military bases sort of circling around China. So my sense is that American foreign policymakers, uh, in my opinion, foolishly, and in my opinion, um, this is impossible to achieve, believe the United States is going to remain forever dominant in East Asia. Um, so what they're doing is they're trying to shift um, basically uh, strategic um, attention uh, to from the Middle East, from these like so-called endless wars that don't really do much that's good uh, for the United States and have been generally recognized basically across the political spectrum as pointless, uh, shift attention from there uh, to China. And, and this provides, again, a logic for China uh, uh, a, a logic for the continuation of the American empire, uh, a logic for the continued uh, hegemony in East uh, Asia. And I want to add a third thing, a potential logic to paper over domestic divisions. So one of the great things that the Cold War did is that it basically allowed American society to organize itself around an existential enemy. And you already see this rhetoric. And one of the reasons, as Anna just gestured toward, one of the reasons that people on both sides of the political spectrum are using anti-Chinese xenophobia um, is because this provides a way to sort of paper over these differences and to put together a crumbling um, American um, society. And I wouldn't be surprised if the new Cold War with China, like the old Cold War with the Soviet Union, uh, is used to do things like fund health care, to fund American universities, using a national security logic. And I want to point to one more thing, and I think this is a gigantic problem for the left. In actually existing American history, social democratic reform from public housing to anti-racist legislation to the funding of American universities have always been accompanied by a militaristic program. You don't get social democracy in this country if you don't also have American militarism. And this is an enormous problem for the American left because what's happened in the past is that, you know, leftists, you know, maybe they don't love fighting with this existential enemy, but if there's no way you're going to get funded American universities, that's just something you have to deal with at the time or something along those lines. But we've never actually had social democracy without this militarism. And I think this is an enormous analytical, moral, and ethical problem for the uh, basically our generation of leftists who are avowedly anti-imperialist and avowedly internationalist. I always, I always think about um, the day that China surpasses the United States in GDP is going to be like, it's going to be a weird day here. Like people are going to, 
like America, the people who like believe in that kind of shit in America, you know, like are are gonna like have a total freak out. I want to ask about. I know you're not probably a Latin Americanist, but you're some of your best friends may be Latin Americanists. Uh, if you had a similar role that you just had with the Bernie campaign, with some of these um, sort of new pink tide uh, candidates emerging in Latin America, whether it's Odyssey or Araus or, or even Lula, um, what advice would you give them uh, in this kind of in in 2021? You know, like what 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 should they be looking towards? What should they learn from the first experience um, and like what should they be focusing on? It's a great question. And before I answer, I just want to point people to an um, issue that I co-edited of, of, of NACLA. Uh, already um, plugging, already plugging some, some fucking shit. God damn it. Uh, I don't get any money from it, but uh, there's, there's a great left-wing organization based at NYU called NACLA, N-A-C-L-A. And I co-edited uh, a NACLA report titled The People's Policy for the Americas, um, which was essentially what the goal of it was, was to bring Latin Americanist experts and most importantly, Latin Americans themselves uh, to provide, you know, this looked like when Bernie might actually win to provide a series of policy recommendations for what a Bernie administration do vis-a-vis Latin America. And so the thing that, there we go. Uh, And so the thing that really came out of that was that what most Latin Americans want is just for their fucking sovereignty to be respected. I think it's difficult for Americans to appreciate how much the United States has intervened in Latin American politics since the early 19th century, and in my opinion, has totally distorted organic development. So the first thing to do would be to allow Latin Americans to do what they want. Well, I'm talking about, yeah, but that's assuming you were talking to Bernie. What what should like Lula, assuming assuming the United States is not going to stop because it's not. So assuming the United States is not going to stop, the only thing that I think you're able to do is basically have some sort of Latin American block, like a genuine Latin American block. Now, the problem, Nando, Anna, as you no doubt know, is that there's a lot of different domestic developments within uh, within Latin American, within Latin American countries. There's indigenous politics, there's agrarian politics, there's developmentalist politics. And this, of course, scrambles the left right divide that we understand as we understand it to be in the United States. So take, for example, AMLO. AMLO made his career as a mayor in Mexico City by partnering with Carlos Slim in order to develop the city. So the difficulty is that the, the, the goals of Latin American politics are not necessarily the goals of the United States, obviously, but that this scrambles the entire political spectrum. But if I were giving like blue sky advice, I, um, I would say that you have to organize some sort of block. You have to start building connections to powers that are not the United States that will be able to provide you with the capital to develop the, your, the, the societies of Latin America, which people I think still actually um, uh, that, that the people of Latin America uh, seem to at least still want. It, but it's, it's very difficult. And of course, the famous Porfirio Diaz quote is, you know, Mexico, so far from God, so close to the United States, because what's happening during all this is that the United States is putting its finger on the scale of these various uh, groups, these various elites, and really um, messing with local Latin American politics. So the only way I see is block and finding some sort of external source of development aid. But like, it's not like you really could trust China or Russia either. So it's in, and as it has been for centuries, Latin America is in a very difficult uh, position and looks likely to be uh, in a difficult position for a while. You know, as you were answering that question, I was thinking about uh, Biden's so far uh, Biden's rhetoric in regard to uh, Venezuela, his administration's rhetoric in, in yeah. regard to Venezuela, and how, uh, despite how comical it is, uh, they're still referring to Juan Guaido 
um, an individual who has failed to uh, conduct a successful coup in Venezuela as the leader of Venezuela. <laughs> um, it's just couldn't even it's, do it's a coup most, with U.S. support. What a cuck! You know, like oh my god, it's just so embarrassing. The CIA, I would do a coup uh, every day of the week. <laughs> I mean. <laughs> But imagine being the leader, uh, like what the most powerful person in the world, uh, referring to this clown as the rightful leader of Venezuela. Like, I guess I just wanted to make a comment about that. I don't know if I really have a question, um, but I do want to get your thoughts. Yeah. It just indicates, as many things indicate, that the United States thinks it's so powerful in Latin America. It genuinely or generally doesn't care that much what happens because it thinks that it could affect things. It's not worried about Latin America in a meaningful sense. So I guess the returns to Nando's question, somehow the governments of Latin America need to find a way to make the United States worried about them in a legitimate sense. Um, now what that entails, I don't know. I'm not enough of an expert, but I think they need to put the fear of God. Um, and that is the fear of Latin America in the United States. Someone like Biden who has no interest in Venezuela. I don't think there's a particularly strong interest there. It's just basically repeating right wing talking point because it doesn't care that much, right? There's not much of a consensus within the Biden administration that things should be different in Venezuela or that things should be different in Latin America. And so that, that has to be forced somehow exogenously from the countries of, of Latin America and also, of course, domestic pressures. They should do some memes like what Putin did on memes. Facebook and the memes. The memes will make them terrified, you know? Uh, well, one of the things that, like, I've always, think, and I think could be an interesting thing to think about in the coming years is to, like, more genuinely integrate the United States with Mexico and Canada, because Mexico and Canada, I still believe, are the United States' two largest trading partners. And the U.S. and Mexico really do rely on each other. And creating, beginning to create some sort of supranational organization that genuinely brings the two countries together without, of course, America dominating it would be a useful goal. I don't know how that's possible, uh, but, you know, I think we need to begin thinking creatively. Um, I think there's been such uh, U.S. intervention in Latin America for so long that something needs to be done to meaningfully stop it. Mm. Yeah. yeah. Well, um, I, yeah. And, and you got anything else? I mean, I could keep no, talking. I, I mean, but yeah. Well, Daniel, I mean, actually, like, I'm just thinking about all the various foreign policy questions I have, because apparently Daniel knows everything. <laughs> I can ask yeah. him anything What's I about, want. What's going on in Africa? Right, right. <laughs> Let's just do a tour around um, the world. What about Australia? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I can't, I can't think of anything um, specific at the moment. Um, but, you know, I do think it's important to keep an eye on um, just going back to China. Like, that's the most interesting, um, yeah. you know, foreign policy issue uh that's being discussed right now. And okay, I do have one more question about China and it specifically has to do with uh, the left and how they frame, um, you know, U US foreign policy toward China. So I've noticed that there is a lot of difficulty in having um, a nuanced analysis of countries like China. So for instance, on one hand, you know, you can be fearful of the United States, um, you know, increasing uh, its antagonistic approaches toward China, for instance, um, selling uh, record numbers of um, arms to countries like Japan. And that's a problem. I mean, it's going to destabilize the region, just pumping it with more and more weapons is not the answer. But at the same time, I think it's okay uh, to be real about um, any wrongdoing on behalf of the Chinese government. So uh, the treatment of the Uyghur Muslims, that's real. Um, being honest about that doesn't mean that you're in favor of, um, you know, any type of militaristic action uh, toward 
China by the United States. Um, so how do we how do we kind of, uh, I guess, sharpen our framing when it comes to these types of issues? Uh, and I completely agree. There's no reason to be Pollyanna-ish about the Chinese government, uh, not only what it does with the Uyghurs, but it's an oppressive government that basically doesn't allow for any civil liberties. Um, and and to, to me, that's that's almost a truism. Uh, but at the same time, like you said, one is one has to be able to make those critiques without then, you know, at the same time, bolstering uh, the U.S. desire to maintain hegemony in East Asia forever. Um, so I think one of, the, one of the most important cultural things that like we are... So the way that I think about it personally is like I am situated in the United States. I'm an American citizen. My voice has more meaning here than it does elsewhere in the world. So I'm primarily thinking as an uh, American, not because I think like nationalism is good or the nation state is great, but like at this historical moment, I'm, uh, I exist in a historical complex and this is where I'm situated. So one of the things that I think that I could do is help to convince Americans that sort of the universalistic fantasies that emerge from the Protestant, let's even say Puritan character of this country, which uh, imagines that the United States could rule the globe in a meaningful way, uh, which also sort of blended itself with progressive capital P ideology at the turn of the 20th century is just wrong. The United States can't manage the world. There are things that are going to happen that are not good, and the United States shouldn't do anything about them because variety of reasons. Um, one, we've proven in the past that when we try to help, we oftentimes make things worse. But perhaps even more importantly, um, from my perspective, if we do have the capacity to quote unquote help, that means the American empire is still incredibly powerful. That means we have an enormous military that is able to do anything that it wants uh, around the world. So I think what we have to do is, is, is use our voices as leftists to critique you know, the PRC when it does awful things, while at the same time using our voice as anti-imperialist to say that the United States shouldn't do necessarily uh, anything about these things, shouldn't remain forever dominant um, in the region, because that is, you know, a, an imperialist policy. Now, given that, that doesn't mean that, you know, uh, leftists should be silent about the Uyghurs or shouldn't build sub-national organizations or sub-national solidarities that could be used to, to help oppressed populations um, deal with being oppressed. I mean, and, and, and just to, to put it, you know, a fine point on it, we live in a gigantic country with a lot of land. Um, maybe the best policy for the Uyghurs would be a, a blanket refugee resettlement policy when anyone who wants to flee oppression could come to the United States, be granted an annual salary, be, be granted land, be granted a job, and, and could like that could be a, a, a genuine refugee refugee policy. And that refugee policy could, of course, be, uh, of course be tied uh, so you don't get the xenophobia that's come in the past when that sort of thing, or that, that's never been tried, but uh, the xenophobia that emerges from immigration, that sort of policy could be tied to a jobs program where, you know, people who are here already, American citizens, um, can be given jobs to help, you know, re relocate and resettle the press populations. I don't know if that's a necessarily good thing, but we need to think, what I'm saying is we need to think creatively. And that, if anything, now that the left is not going to be in power, if anything's been shown, that at least for four years, probably for eight, maybe even for longer. Now is the time to think creatively about potential policies. So uh, I'll just say one thing. And then I'll stop. So if, if we think about like in the in the 1910s and 20s, when, you know, like uh, electricity became a municipal function and all of these previous private groups like subways, you know, were taken over by the by the local state. Um, when that happened in the teens and the 20s, that was actually re the result of 30 or 40 years of thinking about new types of schemes of governance that would be able to benefit the people. And I think as the left is out of power, 
It could begin thinking creatively, thinking imaginatively about new ways of approaching the world that could achieve our goals of anti-imperialism, anti-oppression, um, uh, and, and sort of bringing more democracy to the people in a meaningful way. Because the fact of the matter is we're not manipulating the levers of power. We're probably not going to be able to, at least on foreign policy, domestic policy might be different. And so now is the time for creative thinking. When I, I lived in Shanghai, when I lived in Shanghai in 2008, um, it was just remarkable how the government would just like raise an entire city block and then just like build like an entire new thing, like just forcibly remove like, you know, maybe 10,000 people, 50,000 people from an entire city block um, and then just move them to a different part of the city and then build new development that happened next to the apartment that I was living in. They built a bar as part of this development that had China's first ever mechanical bull. And I got to tell you, there was a line around the block, like two times around the block uh, to try out this mechanic. So, you know, maybe they're maybe maybe they're thinking creatively. They're they're buying off the people with mechanical. Well, that's bulls. The problem, uh, right? This is what's interesting about the CCP, the Chinese Communist Party. Right. Their entire legitimacy is, is rests on development. Right. Yeah. That is, it's, it's very obvious when you live there. It is like breathtaking development. It's like, yeah. it's like you know, blink and an entire city block is just completely new. You know, like it, the feeling of like, you know, forward, 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 forward development is very, very palpable. At least it was. I guess it's wow. It's now thirteen years since I lived there, but uh, I think um, it probably still is. But then the question is, what happens when the development slows? And it's as uh, my understanding is, it's already started to, and will continue and and get get slower and slower in the future. The Chinese Communist Party, in my opinion, is about to face an enormous crisis of legitimacy, which is one of the reasons that she has essentially made himself, you know, even more of a dictator, dictator for life. Not, yeah. not even like a technocratic. dictator which is what they had, like a dictator, dictator, like President Xi, you know. Uh, and so one of the one of the reasons he's doing that, I think, is to basically um, defend against this future, this this coming delegitimization of the of the CCP. And what happens with that in such a gigantic country? I mean, who knows? So that I mean, uh, the, the CCP might be in power for 100 years. It might be in power for another 10 years. You know, Tiananmen was only 30 years ago and those the soviet union like the the most right-wing kind of hawk in the united states like did not see the soviet union collapsing in 1985 yeah so who knows you know ask a french noble in 1788 how long the uh monarchy is going to last they would have said forever so these things happen and you can't know <laughs> all right daniel besner uh thank you for being so generous with your time and uh letting us ask you anything we want about uh, the world it's so good to have you yeah, so good uh, seeing you guys. Uh, I'll see you later. All right, see you soon. Love Danny. All right. Yeah, he's just, he's so brilliant. Um, it's such a pleasure to have him on. I love having these conversations with him. Um, and we love having conversations with you guys as well. So if you have a super chat question, leave it in the comment section of uh, the YouTube stream mm. that we're on right now. Um, just a friendly reminder, this is not the Young Turks. This is Jacobin, a completely different company, um, not at all related to the Young Turks. Um, and just some people seem confused. Did I say something? No, 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 it's, it's the chat. No, there, it's the some, chat. Oh. Yeah. There's some chat oh, okay. going on today. Uh, yeah, no, we, Popping we're, off. we're our own thing. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I'm on screen because I'm the producer because we're going to do super chats. So like Anna just said, leave some Hello. super chats. Um, I have a couple. Hi, Kale. You look you look beautiful this morning. Thank you, you do look beautiful I this morning. Yeah, Kale. afternoon for <laughs> afternoon for you. Yeah, it's we're on 
the opposite side of the globe right now. So it's, um, so actually, so let's just start with this one. When does weekends get a mechanical bowl? Hmm. Uh, you know, uh, Bosker, uh, well, if you guys said enough super chats, you know, right. we, we can fi- finance a uh, mechanical bull. We'll do it democratically. If you if the people want a mechanical bull and we get enough, raise enough money, I'll ride the, the freaking bull. Okay, I'll do it. It's fine. If, you know, I, I'm not above it. Get a hashtag. I agree. Nando will ride the, the mechanical bull for sure. <laughs> <laughs> hashtag make Nando ride the bull. Is that too long? Yeah. We, we need a shorter hashtag. Mm-hmm. Someone in the chat come up with a better hashtag. Um, yes. It's not really my forte. Uh, okay, so a um, couple super chats that came in earlier, and I'll get to those first. And then again, if anyone has questions, we can do that now. Um, but uh, Lee had said earlier, um, my concern is for Lula. My concern for Lula is assassination. Um, also, Corbin did not face down the bullies immediately. He called them out. Uh, he did call out opponents for equating criticism of Israel with anti-Semitism, right? Um, yeah, I think I think your timeline's right, and and, and Corbin did push back pretty um, pretty clearly on a number of occasions that uh, any kind of criticism for either uh, Netanyahu and the regime in power in Israel or their actions towards the Palestinians in either Gaza or the West Bank, uh, any criticism of that is not at all predicated on being anti-Semitic or thinking that there's something wrong with Jewish people or Jewishness. It's entirely geopolitical. It's entirely about the fact that there's a humanitarian crisis in, in this part of the world that is actively being created not just it's not just a fluke you know it's actively being created by the government in israel so uh, yeah yeah i mean i I don't know that you know people people sometimes say like corbin should have been more aggressive or something and and maybe like you know doing like the inquiries and stuff like well we're gonna do like a study and see if like labor has a anti-semitism problem like even just kind of doing the study itself is like kind of a in a way an admission of something um, but I also don't know that he, even if he would have been like, you know, ripped off his shirt and been like, you fucking bitches, you know, like, no, I don't know that it would have, I don't know that it would have, I can imagine Gorman doing it. I mean, I he say, would have liked it. Yeah. We, yes, of course we would have liked it, but I don't know if like it would have, uh, I don't know that it would have made a huge, huge difference. I mean, I, I, I don't know. I'm, I guess I'm, I'm much more forgiving to Bernie and Corbin maybe than I should be, but I, I just can't help myself. I'm sorry. I think the best defense is an offense, right? Like, uh, just something to think about. Um, I agree with you. Like, uh, suggesting the study is a terrible idea because it, it, it's almost like an admission of guilt and it's unnecessary. Um, there's something to be said about, as stupid as Trump was, uh, there's something to be said about his unwillingness to cave into any type of pressure, right? Any type of pressure to change his rhetoric, to uh, admit guilt in any area. Like there was just the, and the right wing is really good at playing offense. Uh, whereas I think the left tends to find itself in a position of having to defend itself or explain, you know, its positions. And I, I don't know if that's going to get better. I don't know if there's um, any thinking about. Uh, I think one of the biggest problems as well is like 
no ideological group is willing to stab each other in the back more than the left is. I, I mean, you see it all the time. And that's a problem as well. Like you saw it with what happened to Lula. I mean, obviously, that was a politically motivated um, prosecution. And the second he gets accused of corruption, he starts losing support. Right. And you see similar themes playing out in, in America as well. We need to actually solidarity isn't just like rhetoric. Solidarity is an action as well. And we need to think critically about any type of accusations that are, um, you know, lodged against um, our comrades, you know. And so that's that's something that I would um, kind of look out for moving forward. Right. I mean, there's also there's this horrible temptation that uh, and it speaks to exactly what Anna's talking about, that the left has to get away from, which is any time, especially someone in a position of power on the left, doesn't do what you want. It's evidence that they have sold out, that they have uh, they're now working for someone else. They're no longer on your side. They no longer believe the cause. They've given up the ideal. They said that about Morales all the time. Right. I remember yeah. I that mean, was like a classic, you know, like, well, he's not not progressive enough. Right. Not I pure mean, enough. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, if you if you're on the left and you take the idea that the like if you actually think that capitalism is a real massive and powerful economic system that we live within, that it's obvious it's it's a real abstraction. You can't touch capitalism, but it's it's this massive force around us that is dictating. You, you know, can't touch it, but it touches you. <laughs> it touches you. <laughs> it's, it's, yeah, it but like, but you just so can't like, touch it back. <laughs> so, but for if you're if you're a left politician, uh, there are massive uh, pressures, real pressures that are pushing you as far as as it possibly can away from your left political project because left politics is inherently antagonistic to the status quo like that that we our ethos uh, that drives our decision making is that we want to put people over profits and that's literally the opposite of what our system produces regularly where people are just an input into getting profit at the end of the day and so if you're running a government within capitalism you have to deal with the fact that the state largely is there, not entirely, but a lot of the functioning of the state is that it has to make sure that profits are up, that markets are good, that capitalists are happy. And even if even if that's not the case, uh, capitalists will, will let you know that they're unhappy. Uh, you know, even inactivity, you don't even have to be pushing forward a left agenda. You know, Obama had an entirely uh, Goldman Sachs decided cabinet coming in in 08. And yet, you know, he's still going to the bankers saying, I promise you, we're not going to let anyone touch you. You're going to be OK, because, you know, the government ends up going to Wall Street, ends up going to these corporations and telling them, like, don't even get a wrong idea in your head. Like, I promise I'm going to be on your side, because if corporations and capitalists uh, turn against you, not even collectively, just individually after after a while, it's it just it will destroy your government because it means that they can drive up unemployment. They can uh, there's shortage uh, shortages of, of key goods that not only we as consumers need, but also our inputs into other production processes. So you, a left in government has to make certain not 
great decisions. I mean, that's just part of what it means to be in government because from the point of, from the vantage point of the left, because you do have to basically, if you're serious, you do have to keep profitability up. And this is what, when we had Corbin on a couple weeks ago, uh, we had a, I think Nando read the quote by Tony Benn, which is that the challenge of the, of the left in government, the challenge of the socialist reformer is that you have to be able to guarantee to the best of your ability, people's security in the here and now while you're actively transforming society. And it's really hard. And so most of the yeah. time people fail. I mean, that's just what it is. So yeah. like Bessner's new piece in, in his next piece in foreign exchanges uh, talks a little bit about this in that, um, you know, one of the, like if you're just some leftist in Ecuador or Bolivia or whatever, you know, you're just, in a tiny little country within, you know, the forces of global capitalism, right? You're, it's like the, the bond quote, you are, but a kite dancing in the hurricane, Mr. Bond. Um, and, um, and it's, you know, so there has to be some sort of thinking about like the international nature of all these things and like how a corp, like a corporation can just like pack up and leave whenever it wants. Um, and without some sort of, international cooperation not not just like the obvious things like climate change um which requires all kinds of international cooperation cooperation or what we're seeing with the pandemic just the basic functioning of the economic flows um and he's saying like we just got to think about these kind of like international governance i mean it might be like a pie in the sky thing to think about um but like there is there is there is no other way. There just isn't no other. There, there ain't no other way to 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 really do it without some form of international governance. So he has like the provocative thing of like that maybe the U.S. empire could be com- converted into some sort of international. Who knows? But like that that is like at the end of the day, those are always the problems that you bump up against. Right. Is that they can just the corporations can just pack up and leave and take the money elsewhere. And, you know, like the kid that doesn't like the toy and uh, or doesn't like the game and just takes the ball and goes home. Right. So there's another question that I wanted to read because it's related to this. Um, LJ asks us, um, are there applied lefty paradigms and movements in international development and relations for bottom-up community-based development against our own U.S. hegemonic influence, referring to NGO culture and violent interventions? It's extremely wordy. I understand what you're you're trying to ask us. Um also, you're making me read this on camera. I need I need simple words. I'm I'm like fourth yeah, grade simple words. Level. But you know, <laughs> um, but the I guess the I guess the question is is largely around like what is left international politics practically? What does that actually mean? And do we how do we understand that? Like, are there examples? Um, and uh, you know, and he's contrasting it again with kind of how the U.S. does. Uh, internationalism and i'm sorry i was depending on square scare quotes but i'm off camera um you know in in reference to militarism and and basically the you know ngos uh kind of being the substitute for any kind of like genuine uh kind of humanitarian intervention yeah i mean you know i mean well they tried it back in the day right with like the, the communist international and thing i mean they understood that and that's what they were trying to do um, they inter- they understood the need to maybe create international working uh, you know uh, labor unions and things like that like they like these these questions are kind of they've been around and there's been attempts it's just 
it's just really hard. It's a big world. A lot of people out there. Um, they all have, they all have different, different needs, wants, and, and, uh, and kind of concerns. And it's just, and there's all kinds of barriers to, to that kind of, uh, international cooperation, solidarity, and for lack of a better term, governance, uh, you know, the, the communist internationals failed. I mean, you know, they, they, they were not able to, to institute that kind of, um, cooperation. So, um, I don't know. I, I, I don't know. There's, I, there's no current, like really like super promising thing out there. I don't, I don't see, um, I don't know if I'm missing anything, <laughs> but yeah, the NGOs like, like good example of the NGOs, like human rights watch, right? Supposedly venerable NGO, um, mainstream press covers it all the time, whatever it says. Um, they're like condemning, uh, the new Bolivian, the mask uh, government in Bolivia for, uh, releasing the political prisoners that were jailed during the right-wing coup. And it's like, shut up. Like, what? you know, and they're condemning and they're condemning the arrest of Jenny Nanez, you know, um, a super did genius. Did you brutalize indigenous Bolivians? Like, yes. And, and not just that, but like, if you do a coup, like, you know, read the room man. get the hell out of the country yeah. when it, when it fails. You know, like that's just one on one. You got to flee to the United States, you know, <laughs> uh, like the Shah when there was like this, you know, with the Shah of Iran, like there was like this whole movement to like uh, help him out and give him safe haven in like uh, in New York and stuff like you got to get the hell out, bro. They're going to they're going to come after you. They're not they're not happy, <laughs> you know, um, I like your so. advice for for fleeing dictators. <laughs> Listen, fellow, you know. When you have a CIA back coup, call your call your handlers up at the CIA. You know, <laughs> tell them to tell them to pay it back. <laughs> you know, shuffle you out of there in some clandestine. You know, in the middle of the night. Uh, yeah, but um, yeah, you don't want to stick around. It's a bad idea. You're probably going to get arrested. Uh, mm-hmm. I mean, I I just think I think what uh, Danny Bessner said a moment ago. I think. Uh, largely I agree with. And I think he's right that for the left, when we're thinking about not in the most abstract sense, but like more concretely, like what can the left do? I think it is largely national. Um, yeah, there's something, there's one thing he said that I would quibble with a little bit because he was say, I think at one point he said something like, uh, the expansion of social democracy in the U S has also always come with, uh, U S militarism. And, and I, th- I, I know what he's saying. Um, I think he's largely speaking about like universities, uh, and, um, certain like research and development, uh, that a lot of the research and development that After the, the, the war world war two effort, you know, right. Like brought a lot of, you know, like kind of supercharged a lot of the FDRs kind of taking over of the economy. Right. I mean, but it's also, but there's nothing, I don't think there's anything that says Industrial activity and shit like that. Right. Yeah. I just don't think there's anything that says social democracy needs militarism, that like they have to be one in one. Um, Mm -hmm. And that I actually think the history, if you look more broadly around the world, I think the history is that they're more often in tension with one another because it is, running an empire is extremely expensive for the state. And so when you're now piling on all these other things that the state is now responsible for, when it comes to things like healthcare, education, retirement, childcare, 
uh, transportation, certain utilities, energy, um, you know, it, it really is a guns or butter thing. And so, and that's, I mean, the best example is, of course, uh, the in Britain, where, like, it's not the same day, but, you know, you get the NHS at the same moment that you get the collapse of the British Empire. You know, it's... That was yeah. my point, Kale. You stole it. I already said that on the show. Yeah, well, um, I'm just—it's good to repeat. I'm just—I'm just making sure people heard it the first time. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I'm just um, kidding. By Nando Vila, by Kale Brooks. Um, I—I I came up with that. that. Is a wholly original point that I came up with. I, I, no one I has think ever you said stole that. it from me, and I stole what? it from someone. So that's a lie. <laughs> um. Uh. That's I just it's so weird when people get like precious about like left political ideas. Like it's the point is that you want everyone to agree with I mean as many people as possible to Every agree with Every single left ideas. idea I've ever had is wholly original from my brain. Yeah. I have not read any I've not read a single text. I have not read a single book. Yeah. Those are all it's a those are all little port keys to get into secret uh uh passageways <laughs> in my house. I just think it's I just think it's like the the outstanding degeneracy of the left being stuck in academia that like there's this whole this is my territory of of thought and it's like no you you it's want so other dumb. people to agree it's, yeah exactly yes. um Nando how much for a guitar solo it's a super chat I don't I don't get out of bed in the morning for less than five thousand dollars. All right. Which Damn. is what I, yeah, that's just, no, no, we pay you that. Uh, guitar solo, I don't know. <laughs> May, no, no, I'll, I'll, no, no money for the guitar solo. I'll, uh, you know, maybe I'll do it. I don't know. I, I just, I, it's just, what do you want? What do you guys want from me? What is there any guitar particular solo? solo? What a guitar solo. It's, they're pretty clear. <laughs> is there any particular that. one? Uh, Anna, Anna will always, Anna, my favorite thing that Anna does is she'll text me a random, like on a random, usually like, you know, it seems like a time where she might be like exercising or something, and then she'll text me and be like, <laughs> "Yes," and be like, "Hey, uh, just what's up? Good, quick question. Do you know the guitar solo for Creedence Clearwater <laughs> Revival? Uh, uh, heard it through the grapevine? Like, well, no, like not the, like, you know, like I could. Well, I, I don't know. Maybe um, it's I've like this has happened more than five times, and it's amazing. I know, you know? I know, and I, I know. love it. It just always, always warms my heart." Because I'm impressed that you can play a musical instrument and you're obviously very good at it. Um, just Google it. Nando's all over the internet playing guitar solos. Um, so when I hear a good guitar solo, I'm like, who do I know who can actually yeah. do this? And then I think of you. That's why I send you those messages. But it's okay. I mean, I get Jacobin audience. Um, if you play the guitar, let me know and I'll hit you up instead of Nando. <laughs> I won't hit you up. I'm kidding. <laughs> yeah. yeah, Nando, were you complaining? No, no complaining. No Nando's complaining. really good, by the way. Um, so definitely, like, look for those videos; they're very good. We had a we had a segment. We did a uh, we did the co ops. Yeah, the Taylor at, guitar, uh, the Taylor guitar segment. That's right. Yeah. yeah, there's a little I... there's a little glimpse in there. A little Hendrix. Oh, <laughs> I used to be so obsessed with Hendrix that it was like dangerous. Where I was like, you know, I would just tool around with like my amp and like I would you know, spend all my money on like trying different guitar pedals to just get the exact tone that Hendrix had. And obviously you could never do it. Um, it's just very frustrating. So it's just getting very, very close, but never, never quite getting the perfect tone. It's just, uh, 
yeah um i that, that was like my high school was just me obsessively trying to you know play the uh play the red house intro with the perfect hendrix tone uh but mm-hmm. couldn't get it uh last one um we got a question uh i don't know if this is an active idea that is going around i'm not aware of it but someone was asking us uh thoughts on a second homestead act to resettle the great plains small towns have been losing people for decades and the low cost of living federal funds would go further and justify groceries hospitals etc um thanks for the super chat uh is there is there is that on the agenda i don't know um I haven't heard anything about it. I, I, I don't feel comfortable yeah, same. on it. I just, I just have not read anything about a second Homestead Act. I just, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> um, the, well, so just the, the original Homestead Act was in the mid-1800s, uh, and it was yeah. basically an, an easy, cheap way Go- to get... Uh, Kale is furiously, you know, like, I, I heard the clicks, just just Googling uh, <laughs> Wikipedia... <laughs> It was actually passed. Uh, It was part of the Great Compromise of 1849. (laughs) I listen. It's my job to uh, to to perform. Basically, I don't know anything. I'm just making this up. You shouldn't trust anything I've ever said on this show. (laughs) This is just googling and. (laughs) I well, just the. I think the point that I, I was about to make. Uh, is just that, I mean, the original Homestead Act um, largely, uh, my understanding is that it largely was, in fact, connected to, for instance, the interests of railroad companies and wanting to continue expanding West. uh, That, you know, basically just the logic of, like, needing to make a profit. And if you're in the railroad industry, you have to keep putting down rail. And and it's, it's beneficial for all businesses and capitalists to to have that kind of circulation available and quick, easy access around the country. So I think part of it was also in that same effort. I think I'm cribbing this from Thomas Ferguson's work, but um, anyways, uh, I thought it was Wikipedia. <laughs> yeah, I'm I'm holding an open book in front of me right now. <laughs> um, uh, but yeah, no, I think it's I think just. The point that I'm just making is that I think in large part, something like that, it was tied to certain kind of greater uh, economic interests at the time. And so um, obviously, and again, it's uh, interest insofar as they're to the benefit of capitalists and corporations and, you know, businesses. Whereas obviously what you're talking about in your super chat is like rural America has been decimated and we need a massive amount of infrastructure and we need hospitals and, you know, good nutritional food. Um, again, I don't know if that means, uh, basically sending people to go live out in rural America. I don't think that's really likely just because it's like, that sounds a little, people end up living where like businesses are because that's where they have to work. So businesses end up being closer to cities. So you just, it's not, it's not like, you know, people, some people want to live out in rural parts of the country, but most of the time the, the incentive is because you got to live where you work. Mm. So I think the, the point is that we would want to, 
we would want to have a federal jobs guarantee where we are building tons of new infrastructure across the country and especially in rural America that, uh, you know, gets the least upgrades and the least development out of the entire country. And so, um, you know, and that would, you know, if done correctly, it would provide a ton of jobs and they should be public, you know, union jobs where people are getting paid a living wage to to build the, the communities that they live in. Um, I would, that's what I would do. I would do federal jobs guarantee. I, I don't know about a homestead mm. act. Wow. Are there any more? Uh, we can probably call it there. Um, yeah. Um, okay. Well, so there's one more and I don't know if you want to jump into this, but, um, some people wanted clarification about, a couple of weeks ago, we had talked about, or maybe last week, I don't know, whenever we were talking about the effectiveness of Black Lives Matter protests. And, and you had said a lot of the problem was that it was lacking uh, labor militancy and, and a labor movement undergirding that. And so I think um, there was a question about just wanting a little bit more of an elaboration. Uh, well, I, I, I think maybe, I don't know, maybe if I um, didn't, convey the point as effectively as I wanted to. But I mean, the, the general point being that street protests on their own are not a super effective vehicle for change that we saw. I mean, we had some of the largest global protests ever to stop the Iraq war and the Iraq war was not stopped. Mm-hmm. Um, it just was not. And <laughs> I remember it. And um and then in, in last summer, after George Floyd was murdered, um, we saw some of the largest protests ever in this country, plus around the world with with protests in solidarity all over the world. Even David Guetta did a whole concert about it. Um, of course. He and did. <laughs> yeah, you guys haven't seen that video. It's amazing. We, um, uh, Michael Brooks and I did a salt segment on that. There was, oh, there you go. Anna was off and and Michael and I talked about David Guetta. It's amazing. Please look uh, that video. Concert on top of the UN with uh, remixing. This is for George Floyd, eh? (laughs) These are the funky beats for George Floyd and his entire family. Okay. Okay. But answer the question because it's important because I think, um, I think there was a misunderstanding and, um, yeah. And, and I, 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 yeah. I think the caller and majority port either either I didn't convey the point effectively or she misunderstood my point and conveyed it ineffectively to Sam and Emma. But I'm saying that street protests on their own are just a not very effective vehicle for change in that we have the evidence from the George Floyd protests and that there's been some little reforms here and there, but nothing, nothing really major. There's been no transformative uh, political reforms in the wake of the George Floyd protests, which again, I remind people are, were the largest in the history of the United States in terms of like number of people out in the streets and sustained, um, uh, you know, mass uh, gatherings on the streets in the middle of a pandemic. Like it's really remarkable in that sense. Um, because if you don't do, if you don't, if you, if you don't couple the street protests with a powerful and militant labor movement, you will not get the change. It's those two, those twin forces working together are what gets the change. And I think that, you know, the perfect example, the one we talk about a lot is the civil rights movement, right? Which 
we all know about the, in the they've kind of been codified in the American consciousness in the sort of mainstream understanding of the civil rights movement. We know about the Montgomery bus boycott. We know about Rosa Parks. We know about, you know, the marches, the March on Washington, all that stuff we, we know about. Um, but what, what is not discussed as much and is very much a very real part of that era and that it was a critical aspect in 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 the actual laws that were passed were that it was undergirded and supported by a much more powerful labor movement than the one we have now. Um, the labor movement in the United States, the crusty old, you know, AFL, CF, CIO and all these, you know, the, the giant, you know, the Teamsters, crusty, crusty as you as they can be, um, all supported civil rights um, and were were active in lobbying and, and pressuring the political actors, especially the senators um, at the time to to pass civil rights. And this was true for a long, long time. It wasn't like a new thing that just had just happened in the 1960s. So it was those twin forces of the sort of big street demonstrations, which raise consciousness and do all those things and get, you know, make the news and things like that with a sustained um, and powerful labor movement like we had in the United States in the middle of the 20th century. That's when you start to see real reforms. The, the experience in the 21st century of America has been a decline of labor power with a series of very spectacular street protests. I mean, we have we had Iraq, we had Occupy, we had the, the George Floyd protests, none of which have really delivered the goods the way the civil rights movement did. And the, the big difference between the civil rights movement and those was um, the backing of organized labor and, and, and a powerful organized labor movement. I guess is because uh, I'm sure I'm sure like the labor unions all now all support these things. But they're just not as powerful as they used to be. Yeah, I mean, I think just to to put one last point on this, I mean, the the basic calcu- calculation is this: that if you just want symbolic victories, if you just want names changed, if you just want recognition. Uh, if you just want different faces in the same structures that reproduce horrible inequities, you can get that without much of a fight. It still will probably be a fight. And you do see a lot of people who spend a lot of their lives working on these issues. And, you know, so it's not necessarily even easy. But the thing is that, like, if you want to touch money, if you want to touch resources, if you want to touch budgets, and where do our resources go? Do they go towards people's economic needs uh, to their social needs uh, or do they you know continue to uh, you know wind up in the pockets of corporations and and capitalists uh, if you want to touch those other things you have to address power in society and you have to address uh, where power really resides and in capitalism it's in the process of making a profit it's in that process of, of capitalists uh, buying the necessary inputs, whether it's resources and, you know, purchasing labor, you know, uh, hiring people, making something, putting it out to the market, and then making a profit that was greater than their initial investment. And the place where people can actually fight back in that process is in the workplace. It's not out in the street because that's not where they're making profits. Now, doing street demonstrations is necessary, I think. It's not, it's not just like, useful. It's, it is useful, but it's also, I think, necessary because it's a means of uh, 
showcasing, you know, that we are here for a fight, that we we have these demands and it brings people closer to our side. We, we rally our side typically with these with demonstrations and, and rallies and protests. But fundamentally, what we need to be focused on is where are the sites of power within capitalism? Because the government is largely going to do what's in the interests of corporations. Even if even if you get people like Bernie Sanders and AOC and others elected, that's important. That does, in fact, help a great deal. Uh, but at the end of the day, like the budgets that they're coming up with are still dependent on investment. They're still dependent on employment. Employment is privately controlled because it's it's determined by corporations and capitalists. If you want to fight back, you have to f- hit them where it hurts the most. And that is in their ability to make profit. And that's why the left, it's not for any dogmatic reason. It's not because we particularly are enamored with working people. It's not even that they're suffering the most because, you know, you can claim there's there's other more pressing issues even. Like, you know, someone immediately suffering from domestic violence is something that's much more immediately pressing, uh, you know, in, a, in someone in a much more horrific, oppressive situation. But fundamentally, the, the strategy that's come out of the left over the last 150 years is that if you want to take on power, you have to hit profits. And you do that within the workplace by working people. And and the way you get working people to have the power to fight back is through building unions and and working class political associations and working class parties. And so that's why we say you have to focus on labor. It's not because... There's something, again, I, I'm not going to repeat myself, but but that that's the, the central thing. And even when you have all these ingredients, you still sometimes fail because that's how powerful capitalists are and how capitalism as an actual real system is. So the best we can do is is fight and we have to fight hard and we have to rebuild the labor movement because that's the only chance we have to, to you know, to get any of what we what we're demanding right now. Well, that's a good. That's that's a good place to end it. All right, I'll let Thank you guys you. close it out. Thank you both. All righty. Thank you for watching. Uh, next week we are taking a little bit of a break, so uh, we're not going to have a show next Saturday, but we'll be back uh, the following Saturday with a new episode. Um, but it's a good opportunity to catch up on um, maybe some of the older episodes that you missed. Um, definitely check out the Jacobin show, um, which is absolutely fantastic. Um, and yeah, uh, we'll we'll definitely see you guys soon. It'll fly by. Nando, any final words before we go? Uh, I'll miss you on Saturday. Um, Me too. you know, we're going on a bit of a spring break, uh, and, uh, but we'll back, we'll be back ready better than ever. Definitely. All right, guys, enjoy your weekend. Thank you for watching and we'll see you soon.